Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. I am Andrew Comero, a certif- an autistic certified financial planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with my host, Eileen Lamb. Hey, Eileen. Hey, Andrew. Hey, everyone. I'm Eileen. And in this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but real people talking about their boring life or not so boring. Basically, we want to give a voice to people like us. And today, our guest is Vanessa Castaneda-Gill. I hope I pronounced that right. It was perfect. And Vanessa's mission is to unite her passions for art and stories in innovative ways that help people. Learning from her experiences growing up on the autism spectrum, she founded Social Cipher, a social-emotional learning platform that connects neurodivergent youth and their advocates, counselors, teachers, mental health professionals, and an immersed virtual world. Their empowering game-based approach helps autistic youth fail safely for social-emotional success beyond the screen. Her 40% neurodivergent team recently released their game series, Ava, a space pirate adventure that explores social challenges through the eyes of an autistic protagonist. Hi, Vanessa. Hello. How are y'all? I'm excited to be here. Thank you for being here, Vanessa. Um, we want to make sure we, we talk to you the right way. We refer to you the right way. So we always ask our guests how they like to identify. And by that, I mean pronouns and also autistic identity. So like person with autism or autistic person on the spectrum. Sure. So yeah, pronouns are she, her, hers. And then uh, for autistic identity, uh, autistic is good. What led you to on getting diagnosed with autism? When were you diagnosed? And also, how has your identity as an autistic person changed over time? Sure. So I was diagnosed uh, when I was 14. I, uh, and yeah, that was, you know, after my parents divorced, it was, it took a while to sort of get there, but there were a lot of signs. And um, unlike a lot of people who, you know, have been kind of relieved once they get a diagnosis, they feel like, uh, you know, things make sense. For me, I was 14. I felt like I was just a broken person and I succumbed to a lot of the stereotypes. I felt that I couldn't connect with people. I thought that I just wasn't capable of it. So I, tried to shut it down and just not do that. And that resulted in some pretty harmful uh, mental health issues. And so that was really difficult. Um, and that was my perception of autism. I was like, I'm a cold and calculating robot that cannot be fixed uh, and I, I am broken. And uh, of course that was not the case. So once I, I actually started learning about myself and the way I interacted with people through the stories and movies and music and games. And it was through those kind of things that I realized that, oh, I'm not actually a broken person. I just learn very differently and I'm neurodivergent. And I you know, went to college, uh, became a neuroscience researcher and put personal experience together with research experience and started Social Cipher. Um, and yeah, I would say over time, the way I've seen my, uh, my autism has really changed. So even though I had created Social Cipher and I was in a place where I was like, yeah, I'm going to help other people like me so they don't have to go through what I went through, um, I still had a pretty uh, negative view of my past self. And I just thought, you know, my 14-year-old self was so, you know, annoying and emotionless and, and careless and selfish. And all of that wasn't true. I was just, you know, someone that was a different learner that was doing the best with what she had and was going through a lot. Um, and I originally, through the game and through, you know, through everything with Ava, I was like, yeah, I'm going to try to fix my past self so that no one has to go through this. But learned, you know, after talking to a bunch of other autistic people that that wasn't actually the case. It, it was about having compassion for your past self and uh, coming to terms with your autistic identity and its strengths and weaknesses and working with it and 
embracing it overall. I know that you found comfort in games. That's something you, you talked about. And you are the CEO and co-founder of Social Cipher too. What is uh, Social Cipher and who is your platform for and how can people be a part of it? Do you want to tell us more about that? For sure. So uh, yeah, Social Cipher, we're a game-based social emotional learning platform that works with neurodivergent youth and the professionals who work with them. Um, and basically, uh, in plain terms, we make face-hired adventure games for these youth uh, that weave in social emotional competencies and uh, help people embrace their identities to just kind of live better lives and feel more confident about themselves. Um, yeah, and we have, you know, along with our game series, which features an autistic protagonist, we have curriculum, and then we have an entire remote streaming and tracking platform that goes on with it. Um, and we sell that to counselors, therapists, uh, other mental health professionals in schools. Um, How can someone be a part of it? Like if I want to be a part of it, how do I do that? For sure. So you can always head to our website, which is socialcyphergame.com. And you can follow us on uh, Twitter at socialcypher, or you can follow me on uh, Twitter as bonsolo42, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Um, and you can also buy your game or schedule a demo if you're a teacher, counselor, mental health professional uh, on our website. And one thing, uh, and actually, so, so we do some work Uh, and we actually uh, did it and played through the game. And just like the really interesting feedback was, uh, and I had someone who, who works for me and does a lot of the, the coaching, the, the support, um, you know, on my team. And he went through it and he's like, it's different. And I'm like, in what way? And then when I told him that it was designed by autistic neurodivergent people, he's like, well, that explains it. He had like never, you know, done something like this that was not just designed for, but designed by. And I, uh, full disclosure, I have not played it, um, but I mean, but that, I just thought that was so, such interesting feedback. He's like, it's different. And then he couldn't figure out why, not good or bad, but then when I explained it to him. So how is having like a neurodivergent like team impacted the game versus other ones out there? And again, in a positive way, it was designed for the people that it's serving, which is how it should be. Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, having a neurodivergent team, like for me, representation is more than just, you know, having representation with a character, a couple of characters in, in the product. You have to have that representation in the people that are making it as well, um, because that's really where where that full circle kind of impact happens. Um, so I think that having neurodivergent people on the team has, it, it has really been different for people. Um, you know, we also co-develop uh, with hundreds of neurodivergent youth Uh, autistic adults, uh, professionals in the neurodiversity community. And we play test with like, hundreds of people. And you know, we take everyone's feedback in and we take it seriously as a team. And I think that's why we have you know, a lot of nuance in our characters. They're not something that's just meant to like adhere to a framework and teach the things. It's like, no, we don't only want to do this. We want to show that people are represented here. We want to inspire people. And we want to be able to, yeah, educate them and teach them at the same time. Um, but I really believe that you can't have you can't have true impactful education without being truly engaged or invested in some way in something. Um, and this that's why I think this works so much more. Um, it also just helps when, like you know, for example, I when we in our game we have these uh, shutdown sequences for when uh, the main character Ava undergoes sensory overload. Um, for us, that's like how lives work um, in our game, and I you know, you can only describe the sensation of having a meltdown if you have one, um, especially like an autistic or sensory overload one. And so 
the way that we came up with that is I would straight up go into crowds and subject myself to it and take notes on how I was feeling. And then I would communicate that to our animator and to our artist. And that's only stuff that you can get from other autistic folks. Um, and, and I knew that we were successful when you had, when we had young people that were looking at this on screen, they're like, oh my gosh, that's, that is exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I do. And no matter how much, you know, reading or studying you do, nothing can beat that lived experience. And I truly believe that. I think it's true that no one can explain what it's like to, uh, to have a meltdown, for instance, better than an autistic person. I know that there is a lot of overlap between like autism and other conditions that can cause someone to feel like uncomfortable in a crowd or with lights and sounds. <laughs> but when you're autistic, it's just another level. And I just don't think it's the, it's, it's the same thing. And who else can know better than an autistic person? Um, so I guess that's, one of the reasons why you think it's important to have neurodiverse people in your in your company. Um, is there anything you would like people to know about neurodivergent people? That's a broad question, but <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I I would say that I would really want people to understand that neurodivergent folks aren't broken. We have a different way of learning, um, and with the right support and accommodations, by listening to us, um, that's the way that you can help them thrive and you know, reach their best potential. Um, and also that, you know, we're, especially as adults, like we're, we're fully, like we are adults as well. And, you know, deserve to be spoken to and regarded that way. Um, just because we, you know, have this condition doesn't mean that, you know, we're in any way uh, less. Um, and so that's, those are the biggest things that I would say. And also, I, I think that a lot of the time, uh, one of the hardest things to learn, at least for me as an autistic person, was being able to advocate for myself and communicate my needs. So that's something that, uh, you know, neurotypical folks also should try to like meet us halfway at, or at least be conscious of, um, is that, you know, we're on our way in learning about, or at least I'm on my way in learning about advocating for myself, uh, figuring out my needs and, you know, just trying to help. And, uh, you know, it helps when people are supportive and, and can listen and, and validate the things that I feel are that are going on with me, even if you're not experiencing them yourself. Is your app also targeting individual like my son with higher uh, support needs? Uh, is that accessible to them or is it for people who are higher functioning? Don't kill me, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> right now it's right now where uh, it's mostly for folks with uh, sort of lower support needs. Um, it's for anyone that can really read at like a, a middle school reading level, can use a mouse and a keyboard. Um, but that's about, that's pretty much it for us. But we've loved, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what we're working on is trying to really get around the spectrum, trying to help as many folks uh, on the spectrum as possible. But this is where we're starting. And I just want to mention that I said the word app, but it's not an app like on an iPhone or it's more of a platform. Do you want to talk about that too and explain? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and thanks for flying to that. Uh, yeah, so essentially our game is, uh, our game series comes out in different episodes. We're a web-based game, and then we have a web application uh, for streaming and tracking uh, with social emotional goals. Uh, and then we also have curriculum that comes with it too. So, and I, and again, you're not just neurodivergent, right? You're also a, a woman in tech, right? In the mm -hmm. startup world. And it's coming from somebody who like does sales as well, right? And just the, there's a whole like I don't golf and I'm in finance. I feel like that puts me like a leg behind. Like I hate golf. I can't stand it. Right. And all these I companies want to give me golf balls, invite me to golf outings. But like, how is like, you know, I you know, looking to raise funding, awareness for your app, 
not just as someone who's neurodivergent, but someone who has other diversity as well. Um, have you had more challenges or, or less challenges? And how have you overcome them, again, in your field? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I would say that's a tough part. It's I, I've been really working on the fact that, all right, I have, I like, it is real. Yes, I have a harder time with things. I have more challenges, but I've been trying not to focus so much on that and more trying to spin it into, I like all of these things are, you know, quote unquote against me, but I'm not going to be a victim of them. I'm, I'm going to use my strengths uh, that I've learned from all these things and, and, and try to spin it. And so that's, it's hard because I think when, when things get really difficult, uh, like in fundraising or in sales or, you know, when I, when I talk to someone and they don't regard me as, you know, or, or treat me the way I should be treated. Right. Uh, it's so easy to feel discouraged and fall back on like, oh, it's because I'm autistic. I'm a woman. I'm Latina. I'm, you know, I never grew up in, you know, a, an affluent, uh, kind of community. Um, you know, but I think that that can only take you so far until you start either taking action, educating people about it, uh, or, you know, acknowledging that like, yes, this is a thing that I have that may put me against, uh, against lots of things, but you know what, it also serves as a great indicator of the people I should be working with. Um, <laughs> it serves as a great indicator of the people that are not on your side and therefore, you know, you, you shouldn't be working with them and you can create a workaround. Um, and so that's a lot of what I've done. I think that one of the hardest things, like I've definitely as, you know, as most autistic professionals have gotten, so I won't go over it too much, but you know, I did this TEDx talk. I went over all these things of how I've gotten from competition judges that like I can communicate so well and that, oh, I don't even look autistic. Oh my goodness. This is so, wow, this is so cute. Like so great what you accomplished. Maybe that's a combination of being autistic and a woman and it's definitely infantilizing, but uh, I've learned how to kind of slap back at that kind of stuff now. Um, and really just turning my anger into more fuel for like, oh, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing this work. So this doesn't continue to happen uh, to other people in the future. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> How do you like to refer, like, you know, the spectrum is broad and uh, some people have higher support needs than others. Uh, I would say some have severe autism and some are like higher functioning. How do you like to refer to that difference in uh, levels on the spectrum, difference in severity of symptoms? That makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And that's something, you know, that's something we've researched a ton. Um, and I really, like, every autistic person is totally an individual. There are, you know, there, there are folks who are non-speaking, um, but, you know, have strengths in other completely different areas that can live independently and do whatever, you know, do whatever they need to do. People are selectively speaking and, and may have different strengths there. Like, I think uh, that the idea of like a left to right or up to down spectrum of just like, this is low functioning and this is high functioning just doesn't doesn't explain the full diversity and just like capabilities and uh you know different sort of like strengths and challenges of folks on the spectrum um and i think there needs to be more of an understanding of, of just the vast diversity of folks and i i really think that you know you've talked to one autistic person like you talk to one because there are so many different experiences and uh, it just really can't be condensed into like high or low, <laughs> nor, so, it just, nor should it be. <laughs> so the reason that you, you, you dislike, again, the higher, the low functioning, 
isn't so much, it's almost the opposite of that you think that all autistic people are autistic. It's the fact that you think that, you know, that's not enough descriptor. We even need even more like better ways to describe someone or so everyone is just so unique. Not that, you know, um, you know, everyone's autistic is the same and therefore we should get rid of functional labels, but almost the opposite that everyone with autistic being autistic is just so different. Right. And there's so many different levels of support and basically, you know, describe the person and saying a functioning level is not really describing anyone. Right. I think it, it, and I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how that would work. I don't think there should be, you know, like an absolutely meticulous, like categorization system, because I just don't think I, but you're autistic. I thought you think you, shouldn't we think that? I mean, I love data and categories, but I also think that it would just get to be too, it would probably just get to be a lot, like too much and you'd, you'd kind of lose the human of it. And I don't know. I think I, I think it's, you know, kind of like identity, something that folks should identify for themselves and, and really sort of like that. This is why being able to advocate for your needs um, and teaching people how to do this is so important because if you don't know what your needs are, like you're not going to be able to have the the language, uh, whatever you know, form of communication that may be, uh, to describe what's going to help you thrive or what's going to help you feel more comfortable or feel better. Um, so I think that's where things need to be started is like advocate advocacy and and being able to find those words for yourself. I think the issue here is that there are autistic people like my son who are you know level three autistic and. Mm-hmm. Like you can communicate basic needs with an iPad AAC, but. I don't think he'll ever be able to advocate for himself or live independently. And there are so many autistic people who are in this category. And of course, you don't hear about it because they can't be on social media. They can't advocate for themselves. And right. I, like, what what do we do about uh, the higher support needs individuals? You know, it's it's tough because they need someone to advocate for them. They can't do it for themselves. And not just when they're kids, but when they're adults, too. And that's where it becomes tricky. And so while it's true that someone who is high functioning uh, can still struggle in severe ways in certain areas of their life, they're still gonna be better off, if I can say, than someone who can never do these things. You know what I mean? Uh, someone who sometimes go uh, non-speaking because of you know overload, um, cannot comprehend what it's like to be fully non-speaking uh, for your entire life. and I find that it's hard to find advocacy for those uh, severely autistic, high, higher uh, support needs uh, people, and it's hard to include them in advocacy. Do you have any uh, any ideas about that? And maybe yeah, how that, you've um, done that with your own app and your own work. Yeah, I mean that makes absolute sense. And I've I've been thinking of the same question too, of like how are we including people in this? And for us, you know, right now we're working, we're mostly with like high support people, we have, we do have uh, non-speaking characters uh, in our game and we're trying to increase representation through that as well because you know, that's super important. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, besides finding, you know, finding some kind of way uh, to communicate uh, whatever that may be, whatever that, whatever is most comfortable with, you know, a, a, a person with, uh, you know, higher support needs. I think that like, that's also, you know, where parents and autistic advocates need, just need to work together. Right. Like, and, you know, you understand what is you understand and you want what's best for your child and you know what's you know going to make them comfortable or make them feel happy um, and working, 
you know, working with other autistic advocates who, you know, of course, they're not going to know your, the exact experience of your child, uh, unfortunately, but may have some idea of at least, you know, the sensory and social kind of things around it. Um, it's at least a start. And I, I honestly don't know, you know, the right answer, but I think that working together with like a parent or a guardian's kind of like love for the child, as well as, you know, information that we do have from uh, actually autistic folks, um, I think that's that's where we have to start. Yeah, I, I love that you said that. It's it's balanced, you know, because it's true that you know no one knows what being autistic is like as well as an autistic person. But it's also true that just because you're autistic, it doesn't mean you understand what someone who's on another part of the spectrum uh, is experiencing with their own autism because we're all different. So mm -hmm. there is a middle ground there, you know, and working together would be such a nice thing to do instead of having that um, war. And I know you you purposely stay away from uh, the autism community uh, debate and you seem more focused on doing great thing and helping autistic. Um, do you have any advice for others? Yeah, I think that I think we're less staying away from it and trying to like find our place in it. Um, I think we, we, I, you know, I'd like to think that I, I understand both sides, right? Like I, I, uh, I know parents, I have a parent um, who, you know, has raised an autistic child, me. And um, I've spoken to a lot of parents um, in, in interviews and all. And then, you know, of course we interviewed and, and talked with and have an employee like, quite a few neurodivergent folks as well. And in addition to me being a neurodivergent person. And I, the hard thing is that I see both sides, right? Like I see, I see that everyone is at the same, wants the same end goal. Everyone wants for these young people to just feel, feel accepted, feel good about themselves and have a happy and good life. Um, it's the way of going about it and the polarization surrounding that, that is, the difficult part, kind of as you were saying. And I really think that, you know, we've, I've had a really, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, trepidation kind of going into this arena because I don't want to make either side mad. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to alienate, alienate anyone because I think that, you know, we're going after the same end goal. But at the same time, I, as a neurodivergent person uh, and just as, as someone that really believes in like the goodness of people and the good intentions of people, like, I think that building bridges is a really important thing to do. I, I don't think that we can make any progress if we're not working together on this kind of thing, or at least open to hearing each other out. Um, and so, you know, there are certain times where like uh, a parent will say something or, or someone will say something uh, that, you know, originally would make me really angry. And I'd be like, they have no idea what we're, go what we're going through. And, you know, that might be true. They don't, they, they don't totally know what we're going through, but they have good intentions um, and they, they do want this. And so it, it's, it's a matter of like, sure, you can get angry, but like get angry, realize where that anger is coming from and, and channel that into educating and, and building a dialogue with people um, so we can get to a place where we're doing what's best. That's great advice. I hope people are listening and taking notes because I think that's uh, how we're going to heal and bridge the gap. Is that the expression between parents, caregivers, and the actually autistic, autistic community? Um, we need uh, to communicate, 
and not get angry at each other. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's great. Yeah, and I I think I also want to add that like, you know, I I know that there are, there is a whole range of strengths and weaknesses that comes with being autistic, and I I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, like, I think one thing that is empowering and, and that is going to lead to change is you know not looking at autism as a tragedy uh, and not portraying it that way because you know we're here autism is part of us uh and it's it's you know being an autistic person is part of my identity uh and not everyone will identify it that way but you know it, it's part of a lot of who we are and it's it's going to remain that way and i think that you know treating it as something that is what it is where you, just like anything else, you can grow from it. Uh, you can build upon it. You can spin it, you know, uh, turn it into whatever you want that's going to make you feel better uh, or comfortable. Like, I think viewing it automatically as a tragedy is what, what put me into a really bad uh, headspace and lots of mental health issues about it because I kept seeing the stereotypes and because I kept seeing like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do any of these things. Like, predetermining whether or not we're going to be able to do these, do things before, like, you know, we can, we can have a chance at it ourselves, uh, is something that I think we have to eliminate because, yeah. I, I work with lots of parents and what, what's really, you know, interesting is, you know, we're talking about, they'll talk about like their 16 year old daughter, right. And they'll talk about how they're not sure what she might want to do or to be successful. We always try to include the individual as much as possible. So I always <laughs> like bringing up like, so what did you want to do when you were 16? And what are you doing now? How did that turn out for you? Right? Like, cause on one hand, being a confused 14 year old girl seems like the, in like going through like a depressed phase seems like the epitome of normal. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, on the other hand, there are additional struggles and, you know, I think real, you know, focusing on what you're good at, right. And not as much of what you're not good at is really important. Uh, to use a, a, a game analogy that uh, someone, uh, my company came up with, and she said is having autism is like leveling up a role-playing game. You know, why waste your limited skill points on weaknesses when you can build up your unique strengths to reach your fullest potential? Right. Um, and I mean, that that really struck me. Um, not to, if you don't play a role-playing game, it doesn't mean as much to you, but I'm like, that. that's perfect and, and just so accurate. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I, so that was a hard, that, that was a hard thing about growing up uh, and going to college or, you know, the idea of like going to college, getting a job and all of that. Like my, the other thing that builds up on, on all of this, right. On being, you know, being an autistic person, being a bogged down by stereotypes, all that kind of stuff uh, was that like, you know, I was, I was the first in my family to go to college and, you know, we, uh, at the time, like my, I, my parents divorced. I was raised by a single mom for like most of my life. And, and we were, you know, we were struggling financially. And so my whole, like my tunnel vision was on like, well, I'm autistic. So this is a great excuse for me not to have friends. So I'm not going to do it at all. And I am just going to focus on like getting into college. I don't know for what yet, but I just need to get there. I need to get a scholarship. I need to get a job that makes money. And then I need to like, make sure my family's okay. Like that was, that was it for me. I didn't care what I was going to do unless it was like a high paying job. And then I got, you know, now I'm in like, you know, a startup, which is like one of the most unstable things that you can be mm -hmm. in. But, um, but, you know, at the beginning, that was really my goal. And I was like, well, medicine 
there's, you know, uh, medicine, there's a lot, like my aunt and uncle are, you know, PAs, like I, there, there's money in there. So like, I'm going to, I'm going to go for that. So I thought I was just going to go towards medicine, um, just because of like, it's stable and there's money. And then I started, you know, I started really getting into my understanding of the brain. And I was like, you know, especially after I got my, got my diagnosis, I was like, I really want to learn how I even work. Like, how is this even happening? And so I started getting super into neuroscience and I was like, okay, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon because that's still medicine and it's still safe, but there, and there's money, but it's something I'm really interested in. Uh, and then I took organic chemistry and I realized that medicine was not for me. Also realized that I hate the sight of blood. So also just not going to work out. Um, so then I pivoted and I was like, okay, I'm going to be a neuroscientist. And that's when I started, well, I had started working in a neuroscience lab really luckily in like my, before my freshman year of college. Um, so I had an amazing uh, PI and uh, yeah. And, you know, I got published and I was like, okay, this is the path we're going on. PhD, here I come. And then I came up with Social Cipher. I thought it was going to be a college passion project I was going to do with my friends. I thought it'd make a great paper. But then we started winning pitch competitions and I I got accepted to a program called Halcyon where right after college, I went to live in a mansion in DC for six months and they paid me to do it. And I was like, well, I guess I'm working full time on my company now. And that's why we're here. <laughs> so one thing is, is I find that you know, especially neurodivergent folks are well-suited to be entrepreneurs. At the same time, we're horrible to be entrepreneurs. Like, yes. <laughs> you get exactly what I'm saying. I don't have to explain it. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, um, but, you know, but you've taken it like a step further, not just like a small business, but like, you know, when, when I'm working with you, I say like, just, you know, how do you help other entrepreneurs who, want to get to where you are. And I like to tell a lot of like, you can be successful without raising money and funds oh, yeah. and having an app, I, I mean, platform or an app if they're, <laughs> that's what they're thinking. Um, but like, how, what advice can you give to others who are saying, you know, I, struggling to do that? And I guess the thought that comes to my mind is I find we get way too lost in the details a lot of times, which could be an amazing strength but I find mm -hmm. a lot of times with business, you just need to get started, right? We were talking just before uh, we started recording, right? About how no day, nothing turns out how we expect it to be, especially when you're an entrepreneur. So, you know, sometimes you just have to see what happens. Uh, what advice would you have to give? Yeah, so I'm autistic and I have ADHD. So the whole getting started thing is like, you know, something I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I've, of course, I've gone started with the business, but there are, you know, right after you get started with the thing, there are millions of other things that, that build onto it of like other things that you have to get started with. Yeah, exactly. No, this is, I, I have, I have a squishy brain right here that I'm like squeezing because I'm like, okay, we got to stay focused. Um, but, you know, I, I guess my, like, so this is, this is also an example of like, you know, the challenges that I'm facing, right? Uh, like, but that are also kind of strengths for me is like, I didn't grow up in a high, high income household. Uh, and I'm a Latina, like we're known for those two things, like known for being very resourceful. That is, it has taught me to like be super scrappy to like figure out how to uh, get things without paying for them and to lean on people for help and, and like do what I get, what I need to done 
by using the resources around me. Like that is probably the number one thing that has helped me is like, because we we did not, contrary to all of the tech crunch and, and whatever startup publications, whatever, contrary to all of that, you do not need to like start hitting the ground, raising money from investors right away. You shouldn't actually, you should bootstrap and do your research, which we're great at. Like we're great at research. We're great at searching databases. Do that as, as much as possible. For the first two years of our venture, we only were raised, like we were completely running off of uh, money from pitch competitions, uh, crowdfunding campaign that we did and grants. That was it. And just now I am started like three and a half years in, I am now actually raising money. But before then, that's all it's been. And there are so many resources out there. There's accelerators and incubators and fellowship programs. And like you can do, it is literally just like Google search for funding opportunities for startups for women, for neurodivergent people, for, you know, for people of color, like all of these things. Uh, use what you've got and like Google search it. Um, I also think that for, if you want to do a startup, like know that uh, it's weird because what helped me like keep up with the startup was that I thought at the beginning that this was just going to be a passion project or a paper. Um, but you know, it's turned out to be my life for like the past, you know, almost four years now. And, uh, I think it actually helped to be, to not know that. Like, I think it actually helped to be like, all right, this is just going to be the first step. Whatever happens from it happens. But like, at least I can, at least I'm not going to regret not starting this ever. And I, I think that's what happens is like, the essence of getting started with something, especially when you're like me and have autism and ADHD, um, is that you get more scared of not doing the thing than doing the thing itself. Uh, and I think for me, I was just continuously like, I don't want to be like, eight, not 80, I wouldn't be at a bar at 80. I don't know, maybe I would. Uh, I don't want to be like 75 at a bar or like at a part uh, like my grandchild's wedding or whatever, and be like, yeah, I almost tried to start this company. Uh, it was a cool idea, but you know, someone's already done it. It's too far for me now. I like imagine myself saying that and I was like, oh God, no, I don't want to do that. I, I, I want to at least try. And so that's, that's kind of how I got started. And I think you can just, you can like pull the card and just be like, but I'm autistic and I'm this and I'm that, and nobody's going to take me seriously. Uh, or like people like me don't do this kind of thing. Like find role models, man. I'm out here. Andrew's out here. Like we're all out here. <laughs> like there, there are people out here that are neurodivergent that are starting businesses. There are people like me that are out here doing doing startups. Uh, and you're not alone. And you just you just gotta search for us. Like if you're thinking of starting startup and you're autistic like me, reach out to me. I'll I will I will help you out because I know I'm probably one of like one of the few like autistic women in a startup, but like we're out here and we're so down to talk to you yeah <laughs> that was beautiful that was the perfect way to to wrap this up you know i always said because i i'm very stubborn too when it comes to fulfilling my dreams and the, the ideas in my head as and someone people, who chats with eileen frequently i will say she's very stubborn about everything but <laughs> continue <laughs> yeah my husband would agree uh <laughs> But that's also a good thing, you know, because I, I I never give up. And when people ask me, like, how do you do it? I'm like, well, I, you're going to tell me no, like 30 times and I'm just going to keep going. You know, that's what happened with my book. And I think that uh, 
that's how you do it. You never give up, basically. And uh, you you touched on that, and uh, that was uh, beautifully said. And <laughs> like Mark Twain said, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Most definitely. So we we are going to ask you some uh, quick fire questions. Um, Ooh, okay. It's just like you tell us the first thing that comes to your head. Uh, no, no pressure. If, if it's the second thing, that's fine too. <laughs> sure. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, ask for help. What do you like to do uh, to relax? Uh, meditate and uh, watch obscure uh, YouTube videos on uh, movie analysis. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say games. <laughs> and games. I do that too. I just love like analysis of like little teams and stuff like that. What's your favorite food? Cheesecake. What's your favorite film, movie, TV show? Between Silence of the Lambs and The Matrix. Depends on what mood I'm in. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Andrew, put Is that, that in. a question? No. What's that, no. no. That was a question. No. <laughs> what does that mean? The answer is no. What does that mean, Andrew? <laughs> I'm never going to trust you again. <laughs> I, I always throw in like one question, like as the podcast is happening, because we edit a Google Doc for Eileen to read. And um... exactly. <laughs> I need to Google this. <laughs> You'll automatically see that the answer is no, Eileen. Yeah. Um, just like the most hated Star Wars character, like just ever. So he's so he's so hated that actually they redid like <laughs> there were fans that hated it so much that on YouTube they posted the video with all of his like clips cut out of the movie and then just posted the movie like that. They're like, now it's better. <laughs> Sounds so artistic. <laughs> <laughs> it honestly probably was. <laughs> it was probably not the person. That's funny. Yeah, I guess I need to watch Star Wars, huh? How have you not watched yeah. Star Wars? I'm not yeah. doing another podcast with you until you watch at least one Star Wars. I have no movie culture. I mean, I just don't. Sorry. You must. So where can people find you uh, online? Yes. Uh, so, great question. You can find us at socialciphergame.com. That's cipher with an I. Um, and if you press the get the game button, and especially if you're a teacher, counselor, mental health professional, school administrator, uh, you can press that button and you can either buy the game directly from there or you can contact us and I will demo you through it. Uh, and, you know, ask all other questions and we can figure something out. Um, you can also follow me personally on Twitter as bonsolo 42 uh, as evidenced by the Jar Jar Binks question, I am a Star Wars fan. Um, so that's why that name is that way. And then you can find me on uh, our company on Twitter at uh, Social Cipher. And that's mostly where we are. We also have Instagram with the same handle. Um, but really, like our website and our Twitter are probably the best places to see us and find us. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was so great talking to you. It was fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. you all. This is so fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.